You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I'm talking this afternoon, we're recording in the afternoon, with Dr. David Grubbs. He's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, are you wrapping things up there, man? Oh, they're, they're wrapping up whether I like it or not. Um, you know, like a mummy or like a car around a telephone pole, various kinds of things that get wrapped up. That's a pair of images, I'll say that. Like a Christmas present. Oh, that's way better. Ooh. The man with the images is Dr. Michael Farmer. He's coming at you from Woodstock, Georgia. Michael, how are things? I'm good. I'm sick, so if I sound weird, that's why. I'll try to cut out all instances of me coughing. But no promises. Very good. Well, you know. This is like a a semi-Christmas tradition for us, me being sick. There was that one, I, I don't remember when it was. It was the episode... The season where David was absent to finish his dissertation, because the Christmas episode, he came back and we did a a bit about him knocking on the door. But I remember I was so uh, I was I was so laryngeal that I could not I could barely speak. So it was good we had him. I think it's the Milton's nativity. Did we do the Bing Crosby uh, Bing Crosby David Bowie thing? Yeah, yeah, we did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think, I, think I, I even dropped some sound effects in there. That was back when I had a lot of energy about the podcast. I, I am both horrified and proud of that. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, around the network, we've got a new episode of Complementarianish uh, about the movie musical, I believe, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, although I don't think I've ever actually seen it. I haven't either. I edited that episode and had a hard time following it. Right on, right on. Sectarian Review has an episode on weird tales of modernity before they were live. Uh, well, Michael, won't you tell them about before they were live? Yeah, we did an episode on Mickey's Christmas Carol. Excellent. It's a very short episode, under an hour, which I think may be the only time we've ever been under an hour on that program. <laughs> but in our defense, we didn't realize that Mickey's Christmas Carol was only 22 minutes long. Oh, is it really? I, really? I, it's been so long since I've watched it start to finish. I've watched clips of it. Um, but we also have another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles with Greg Peters, do we not, David? Indeed we do. Uh, I've interviewed Greg Peters, gosh, uh, I, can't, I can't remember, it's, it's been years ago, about uh, monasticism, and that's kind of his thing. He circled back around to it with another book, this one called The Monkhood of All Believers, uh, which... Uh, I, I think someone has, has commented that that might be the, the, the grubsiest sounding title ever composed. It's um, certainly a contender. But I didn't write that book. Craig Peters did. It's a good conversation. Very good, very good. Well, listeners, today, this is our annual Christmas episode, uh, and we're going to be talking about Washington Irving's sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon. I almost forgot the name of the book there, guys. Uh, and specifically the Christmas episodes from it. So, Michael, when I took my one American literature class in graduate school, uh, Chris Boudreau presented Irving as one of the first to produce self-consciously American literature. So talk to the listeners a little bit about Irving's place in American letters and, you know, these weird, very English Christmas pieces. Where do they fit in that sketchbook? Well, he, he does have some claim to being the first self-consciously American author. I I think there's at least two reasons to be skeptical of that claim. I don't think I would say that if uh, Chris Boudreau said that. I would disagree with her uh, very tentatively because she's better than me. But uh, two reasons to be skeptical. One, I said a, m- a few months ago, I think on our Emerson episode, that 
Uh, Irving's two most famous stories, which would be Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, are both essentially just transplanted versions of European folktales. So they have American settings, but in a real sense, they're not American. Second, Irving himself lived in Europe for most of his adult life, including when he wrote these pieces and those pieces. Uh, So he's American. He's born in America. He's interested in America. And yet... He's really self-consciously European looking at America or American looking at Europe. And so I think that means if you're going to call him the first self-consciously American author, you got to have a big asterisk, asterisk next to the claim. He made his name with a book called Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York, which is a semi-historical, semi-satirical account told by an unreliable narrator. And that became the model from much of his work, including the sketchbook, you'll notice that the five pieces we read for today are um, in a first person, but the first person may or may not be Washington Irving. Presumably that first person is Jeffrey Crayon, but who Jeffrey Crayon is and what he's about is never really made clear. So uh, it, with everything Irving writes in the first person, you have to kind of put a question mark on it. Uh, the sketchbook is published in installments in 1819 and 1820, and I think there's seven installments of which the Christmas essays uh, form part of the fourth installment. They were published in January 1820, and it, it, his original plan was not to publish them in England at all because he didn't think English audiences would be interested in the Christmas stories about England, and so they, this was originally meant for American consumption. They were written while Irving lived rather miserably in England, and he went there to try to salvage his family's trading business, which was decimated as many importing importing businesses were by the War of 1812. So he goes to England in 1815, and I'm going to let the historian Perry Miller tell the story. He says, Irving was left alone, poor, and an industrialized north of England, which was grimier than New York. Except for a few respites, such as his visit to Walter Scott, he sank into a gloom which was for him profound. For a Washington Irving, even to contemplate such desolation was virtually a premonition of death. If he was to survive, he would have to write. And write, not like Poe, fantastic projections of despair, but consoling visions of benevolent humanity, tinged with reflections on death and the decomposition of corpses, which would then turn them into triumphs for that sensibility which alone could preserve him. This is his state of mind when he's writing the sketches that make up the sketchbook. You do see some hint of his loneliness in the very first essay where he talks about how uh, he's, he's kind of watching all these English people be happy at Christmas and he doesn't have anyone to share it with, but he's, his spirit is kind of lightened by looking at all the other people be happy. But I think largely these essays are cheerful in a way that Irving himself was apparently not when they were written. The sketchbook contains all of his most famous stories. Everything you know Washington Irving for is in the sketchbook. It's got these essays, and it's got the two short stories he's most remembered for. I would say that's the extent of most people's dealings with Washington Irving, and it's the extent of mine. I've read the whole sketchbook, but I haven't read uh, anything else that he wrote. Uh, Also worth noting, the sketchbook contains a lot of other stuff, the vast majority of it unrelated to America. So again, if you're going to make a case that Irving is the first self-consciously American author, you're going to have to deal with the fact that I think only five of the 33 pieces in the sketchbook are set in America at all. And of those, at least two of them are European stories set in America. Does that answer your question, Nathan? Am I leaving anything out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that, and, you know, this was, yeesh, 2006 maybe when I took this course. So uh, we're, we're relying on, on, for me, distant memory. Uh, but I think the case that Boudreaux made is that his was a distinctively American voice commenting on European realities. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get that argument. Do you get that sense from Old Christmas? Does it feel distinctively American to you? Not especially, but I, I'm also uh, someone who, as I said in you know my previous comment, only took one American lit course in graduate school. So, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I will ask this as a follow-up, Michael. I mean, if you had to talk about early self-consciously American writers, which which names would you put forward? Irving is, is, a, is, a, is a defensible choice. I think I would probably say either James Fenimore Cooper, who writes the Leatherstocking Tales that I hate so much, 
or um, maybe Charles Brockton Brown, but Charles Brockton Brown is kind of in the same position as Irving, which is he's importing a European style, in his case, gothic fiction, into the American scene. So I'd probably say James Fenimore Cooper, as much as I dislike him. Very good. Of very those good. three, by the way, Irving's the best read. So me saying that me saying that he's on the European model is not meant as a slight of him in any way. I think uh, you know he's delightful, especially the the stories everybody reads by him. But um, I I I don't think I would call him the first self consciously American writer. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, David, as I as I just mentioned, uh, it's been thirteen years now uh, since I took that graduate course where I first encountered these Christmas texts. Uh, so when I revisited them, uh, I was a little bit surprised at the focus on religious services and the transition from Advent to Christmas in the first piece titled Christmas. But it doesn't stop there. The life of the church is atmospheric in these texts. Uh, what place does Christianity have in this American's account of English holidays? Well, I think you already gave us the word that describes pretty much every instance of religion in this uh, in these chapters which is atmospheric uh, the thing that uh, the thing that Irving is consistently interested in is the way that that religious element affects the mood of uh, the way that it shapes what's going on in the moment um, and his first reflection on it is, is practically at the beginning of of these these chapters uh, just a, a, the second paragraph of all the old festivals however that of Christmas awakens the strongest and most heartfelt associations there is a tone of solemn and sacred feeling that blends with our conviviality and lifts the spirit to a state of hallowed and elevated enjoyment the services of the church about the season are extremely tender and inspiring they dwell on the beautiful story of the origin of our faith and the pastoral scenes that accompanied its announcement. They gradually increase in fervor and pathos during the season of Advent until they break forth in, all ju full, in full jubilee on the morning that brought peace and goodwill to men. I do not know a grander effect of music on the moral feelings than to hear the full choir and the pealing organ performing a Christmas anthem in a cathedral and filling every part of the vast pile with triumphant harmony. Now, I read that at length um, just to hear the, the different ways that he says this is about atmosphere. It awakens strong and heartfelt associations. It is a solemn and sacred feeling that blends with conviviality. Uh, it gives a a hallowed and elevated enjoyment. It is tender and inspiring. Um, fervor, pathos, grander effect of music on moral feeling. That's very important. So the his first comment on the religious importance of Christmas is the way that it affects the human mood. Um, he, he can't actually... I, I don't know why, but he just, he can't even mention Christ about the only ways that uh, Jesus actually shows up in in these chapters is in the lyrics of songs. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, he's much more interested in the way that this traditional religion, much more traditional, he, he seems to suggest, than uh, than that of his own context. Um, is just part of part of the atmosphere. And what it calls to mind for me, David, and I, and I like the fact that you you kind of focused in on the moral feeling, is the sent is the moral sentimentalism that was kind of in vogue in moral philosophy at the time. Right. You know, Adam Smith probably writes the most famous one, a theory of moral sentiment. Uh, but you know, there there's a I was going to say a broad sentiment, but I shouldn't call it that. A broad notion going around uh, that, you know, the true content of morality, of ethics, is not, uh, you know, rational content or church teachings or divine command, but it is the enlivening of certain feelings that make people moral. Right. I, the kind of feelings that this religious element enlivens uh, he include... 
family feeling, uh, the, the, the desire for families to come and be together, be amongst each other. Uh, he attributes that to um, the general tenor of the festival that commemorates the announcement of the religion of peace and love. Um, uh, generosity to, uh, to others who are not as uh, prosperous, not as uh, comfortable or stable in their lives. Um, all, th all of those things uh, he ties back to this religious element. Um, the ways that the, and, and I know we're going to be getting into class, but the ways that uh, the the religious traditions of Christmas in this in this English Christmas that he presents uh, help to build bridges uh, across those uh, boundaries. But much of this is in the face of what seems to be a crumbling of and a decay of this tradition. Uh, he describes them in the very first paragraph as resembling those picturesque morsels of Gothic architecture which we see crumbling in various parts of the country, dilapidated by the waste of ages. Well, what was built in Gothic architecture that would be crumbling in you know, the early 19th century in England? It would be the remains of churches or the remains of monasteries. You know, there were other things built in the Gothic style, I imagine, in the Middle Ages, but... Um, I thought of, those were the biggies. Yeah, but of the things that were built in the Gothic style, uh, only one large category of those got repossessed by a certain very fat king who wrote Greensleeves. Nice, Allegedly. Nice. Allegedly. He wasn't really fat? Not when he wrote Greensleeves. <laughs> <laughs> Well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> David, so much of this seems to me to depend on um, a return to the Middle Ages. Oh, and, yeah. And I wonder how much the vision of medieval Christmas that Jeffrey Crayon is presenting in these essays is a legitimate one. Because certainly you see that kind of mixing of Christian and pagan ritual here that I associate with medieval Catholicism uh, in a good way. Uh, but I, I don't know how, uh, how typical this would have been. Well, it says in the, in the passage that it's not typical. I mean, the, the entire reason why he's able to have this experience, which he describes in such loving detail, is that he happens to be crashing at the house of a country sp squire who is very self-consciously reconstructing and reenacting what he regards as a traditional old-fashioned English Christmas which uh, which means that he's he's doing things that uh, by the by the squires um, by the squires own testimony and by Washington Irving's testimony are things that he would not have encountered everywhere in England. Yeah, in the 19th century, but how much does it look like actual medieval celebrations of Christmas? Gosh, I uh, I don't I mean there are there are accounts of of Christmas revelry coming from the Middle Ages, not lots and lots of them, but uh, the revelry associated with the feast of the church calendar are a trope in chivalric romance. Um, the Christmas plays an incredibly huge role in uh, the English uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So the idea that uh, that Christmas was an important season for people gathering and partying um, does have a witness from the Middle Ages. But between between the time of this this uh, set of experiences and, and practices that that Irving documents, and uh, the Middle Ages lies centuries, and among those things, the you know very important uh, suppression of Christmas, which is probably something that we're going to get into as well, and that's another angle in which uh, religion is influential in this essay. Um, 
It's not just that Christmas is a religious holiday in particular, but it's one associated with the Middle Ages, and it's one associated with Cavaliers in contrast to Puritans. And right. So, so that that angle as well is something that shows up um, a lot. And there is a general notion of... Uh, of superstitions, the parson is telling ghost stories, uh-huh. uh, of which the squire is a fan, even though he doesn't believe in them himself. Um, but this idea that that Christmas is associated with uh, traditions that point um, beyond the mundane, both in a religious sense and in a uh, more spooky sense. Spooky sense, yeah. <laughs> What what have I what have I skipped over? What might we add? Oh, I think you had a lot of the the high points there. I mean, I you know the the parson that you talked about, and we're going to return to him a little bit in a couple aspects of his story. But uh, it it is amusing that here in the you know nineteenth century, he's still preaching sermons against the roundheads. Right. Uh, he you know, and and in fact, Jeffrey Crown even makes the comment that you know. He seems to be the only one who didn't get the memo that the English Civil War is over. Uh, so he, he's still putting up his brave resistance to Cromwell uh, and the, you know, the suppression of Christmas. Uh, so I mean, I yeah, I mean, I th- th- this is a story about uh, anachronism. It's it's a uh, what's 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 Michael's phrase? The the medieval cosplay. Right. When when did Americans start celebrating Christmas again? Because that that might actually be an I, argument. That, <laughs> that yeah, might actually yeah. be an I, argument for this being self-consciously American. I, I the way I remember it, it was in the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, with the influence of this book and of Dickens's The Christmas Carol. Right. Yeah, that's my memory as well. So I I wonder if that's why. I mean that that's just kind of an elaborate joke on Americans who are actually, in some ways, more behind the times than the old world. Do you think? Uh, again, I don't know, but do you think possibly some some traditions might have been preserved in the 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 Atlantic South, um, which tended to be more I don't know more cavalier flavored than New England? Yeah, that's a good question, because it's the Puritans who suppress it, as as the uh, as the sketch notes. Right, so that the the celebration of Christmas or not becomes a kind of proxy for the other right well like like most moral panics in american history this one's (laughs) anti-catholic nice nice well david we've we've kind of brought it up but i want to return to this this is or actually this question's for farmer my bad uh we brought this up already that this is a a piece about great castles and stately manners the kids he meets on the stagecoach seem to have ponies at home uh, Bracebridge seems set on reviving the old ways of the English gentlemen. Uh, and really the only time that we hear mention of peasants, they don't come across very well. So what's going on in this piece when it comes to class and specifically an English notion of class? It's key to understanding these pieces to understand that the narrator, maybe not as much as the squire, but certainly in line with the squire, feels that the world is in steep decline and going further downhill every day. And I mean, you, you've mentioned the decaying examples of Gothic architecture that serve as physical symbols of this, but the, the festive symbol of this is Christmas. So one reason you know that the world is in steep decline is that the rituals of Christmas are not performed as much as they once were. And in fact, uh, may only be performed at Bracebridge. This is interesting because one of the tasks of Christmas, as it used to be, um, as it used to be practiced, according to Jeffrey Crayon, is that it used to level society. And yet that social decline comes from a rise of democracy. So it seems to me that for Jeffrey Crayon, the leveling of society was once part of the festival aspect of Christmas. But when society is permanently leveled, the festival no longer makes sense. So to have the kind of Bakhtinian carnival that he's talking about here, you have to have a pretty rigid class structure the other 11 months of the year. 
Um, and if society is permanently leveled as, as it is now, uh, what could Christmas mean and why on earth would you bother with it? He says that modern life has, quote, worn down society into a more smooth and polished, but certainly less characteristic surface. And I think the democracy is part of that. With that in mind, you might think as you read through the uh, as you read through the sketches that um, that he's going to be anti commoner, and I, I I really don't think he is. Uh, he has the the wonderful description of the stagecoach driver in in the essay, the stagecoach, as a, a kind of little king in the coachyard who has been ennobled by the season because he's so important. He gets people home. He delivers packages and presents and all the rest. So you have this guy who works a kind of thankless job who nevertheless everybody loves for one month one month out of the year. And he gets this really lovely description by Crayon that uh, makes fun of him a little bit, but I think really uh, treats him with a great deal of dignity. I agree with that. I agree. And, I, and it reminds me, oh, now... I should have written down the name of the novel because now it's escaping me. The novel we talked about, about English butlers. Remains, Remains of the, the day. day. Remains of the day. It came to me as soon as I confessed, not knowing it. Uh, there's an allegory here, readers. But uh, <laughs> uh, it reminded me of that because, you know, the, there, there is this extended discussion of, you know, the, the fine art of being a stageman. Right. Right. It's a noble profession, and, and maybe we only recognize it once a year. But again, that nobility is not going to be possible for the stagecoach driver either unless the hierarchy exists. If everything's flat, the stagecoach driver is just like everybody else, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, the other place you see it, of course, is at Bracebridge itself as a structure. So it's a very artificial style. He says when he first gets there, quote, the boasted imitation of nature in gardening had sprung up with modern Republican notions, but did not suit a monarchical government. It smacked of the leveling system. And so you have this very fancy, ornate garden at Bracebridge in the French style, in the style of Charles II, importantly, um, who I believe one of the squire's ancestors came back to England with Charles II, which, which certainly shows you yeah. where his loyalty is. Um, and, and so... The gardening system even is anti-democratic, but not in such a way where it means that the squire is cruel to his servants. When we first get to Bracebridge, the squire's not available. He's actually hanging out with the servants because he's the one who tells the best stories and sings the best songs. And so they want to be around him. And in fact, they don't answer the door when, it, uh, when they first uh, knock on it because they're having too much fun to hear it. So it's not as if, at least in this, in this version of hierarchical British society, it's not as if the people on the bottom are suffering. Uh, the, the, the class system works for them as well. And, you know, I, I somewhat doubt that that's the whole story of, of class in British society, but it is the story that Crayon tells in these essays. Well, and we had a glimpse of, shall we say, a more extended picture uh, later on when the parson is, you know, preaching his anti-Cromwell sermon. He says, well, the reason that all of the people of England are seeking democracy and reform is because the lords don't open their doors like they used to in the old days, and they should bring the peasants in and have a grand feast in the great hall. And then, you know, Geoffrey Crayon breaks off to say, I've heard that uh, Bracebridge tried to do that before, uh, but what happened was every peasant within 20 miles heard and they overran the place. And ever since then, they've just handed out food at the door. <laughs> I was just looking up some dates because uh, that, that reminds me of Andrew Jackson's inauguration, which famously he invites the, <laughs> the populace to and they, they, make a, they, they make a real mess of the White House. But that's nine years after this. So that's life imitating art, not art imitating life. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I hadn't even third, thought of that conversation or not that kind that connection that's the word oh listeners i'm teaching two online classes right now and they're melting my brain nice well david uh as the narrator and as we readers come to discover the bracebridge christmas has a certain bookish character to it we've made passing reference to it i want to dig into it a little bit more uh i have a hunch that you know this business of waterloo and newspapers uh 
in some ways is there to set the stage for the parson who I found a little bit pitiable. He is a he is an aging parson. He spends his life surrounded by aging books. Uh, as you read it, David, does the manor's reliance on books for its preservation of the old ways mainly add charm or mainly pathos to what we're reading? I I I think it has to add both. The reason why uh, the reason why the books are so necessary, and I, f- I find a I find bookishness charming just generally um you know i love i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bookish person and so i find the bookishness of well, hold so up many... hold up what do you mean by the adjective bookish before we go any further bookish, uh someone who likes books who thinks about life in terms of books who has lots of them um you know enjoys pouring over them finds them you know valuable in themselves Ah, okay. Maybe I should have used the word antiquarian then, because I, what I see in the parson oh, is someone yeah. who insists that no, we mustn't, we must not do it that way because the book says otherwise. So the kind of Tom Sawyer approach. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> parallel. That's a good parallel. But sorry, David, I cut you off. Keep rolling. No, no. Um, so I, I, I find that I find that charming, and it's not just the parson. Uh, the parson's this way, but so is uh. You know, so is uh, Master Simon, so is the Squire, um, and so is Washington Irving or or Jeffrey Crayon. Uh, every one of these chapters begins with a kind of learned epigraph, and the text is full of footnotes with quotes from authorities. Uh, it, this is a, a it's a bookish book. It's an antiquarian book. The access to the past that they have is primarily through books, but the reason why, and this is where I think the pathos comes in that you're feeling, the reason why they are accessing the past through the books is because they are cut off from the past. The This is brought up almost immediately uh, by the narrator who describes uh, the uh, the May morning of life when as yet I only knew the world through books and believed it to be all that poets had painted it. Um, and so as he wanders around, you know, this very old-fashioned, uh, old-style England, as an American who has access to this past um, and its picturesque landscape and all the rest of it, first through books, uh, there, there is a there is a kind of romance to it, a kind of magic to it. Um, you know, I imagine if I grew up, you know, as a, you know, as a shepherd on Dartmoor, um, I would feel about it very differently than I do, knowing Dartmoor first and primarily through the text of the Hound of the Baskervilles. So there's something magical about knowing things through books. But the fact that I know Dartmouth or uh, that, I, that I know Dartmoor through books is because I've I've never been there. I'm car- cut off from it. I've never even seen a moor, right? So similarly, Washington Irving or and his narrator, uh, they are they are cut off from this past. But so are um, so are the 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 English the antiquarian English. Um, even the traditional games to be played, uh, the the son of the squire des- describes with affection his father looking up the rules for games <laughs> and making sure that they were played in the approved ways. Yeah, that's the bookishness I was talking about. Yeah, um, but it, it, and it's kind of a it, not necessarily the. I want to make sure that everything is, you know, by the book and according to Hoyle, so much as it is, there is this authentic Englishness, which we have lost, in which I only have access to through books, and so I shall attempt to, re- to reconstruct it. Um, that, that attitude, uh, the parson spending all of his time um, Reading the old, uh, the old polemical fights between Roundheads and Cavaliers about the probity of of Christmas, uh, that that past, 
Uh, and even even Uncle even Uncle Simon, who so many of his songs are just Herrick. Uh, Herrick shows up constantly. Um, yes, yes, the great cavalier poet. Yeah, uh, and and it's mentioned more than once that the song that they sing at a particular point or the poem that they recite uh, is actually one that was found in some old text. You know, the the need to cite the source for the convivial song that you sing at a particular point. Uh, there's something there's something in this that might seem, I think, to a, a perhaps a, a a low church or a, an anti-establishment Christian of the American type, um, a kind of artificiality, uh, a strange formality to it, but to someone whose notions of worship tend to be built around a book that provides instruction for it, um, like a missal or a book of common prayer, <laughs> uh, I think this would make a great deal more sense. But uh, the the notion that our, our squire and those around him instinctively assemble texts about what is the appropriate thing to say and do at particular times uh, seems an extension of that idea that not only not only must worship, you know, on Sunday or Saints' days have its appropriate liturgy, as they do in the chapel, but also everything has its appropriate bookish liturgy. And a connection just occurred to me, guys. And I, uh, how long has it been since either of you revisited uh, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue? Five years. Long. Okay, all right, and I, and I realize, listeners, and by listeners I mean Danny Anderson, that I, I managed to bring McIntyre into everything, but uh, the opening of that book, when it talks about the, you know, the hypothetical society where the fragments of science are brought forth out of books and no one really understands what they're doing, but they insist on the authority of the fragments, I think that might be what this is reminding me of. But it's been a while for you guys. So well, I, it's, <laughs> I mean, that that reminds me of uh, of these fragments I've shored against my ruins, right? Or about oh, sure, an sure. image that Hannah Arendt uses for Walter Benjamin. She says that to read Benjamin, you have to think of society as a pearl necklace that someone has dropped on the floor, sending the pearls shooting everywhere. And Benjamin is the guy picking up the pearls and trying desperately to put them back on the string, even if they don't go in the same order. So there's some sense Mm. to that, but also don't you think that that's just kind of what Christmas is? I mean, isn't your experience of Christmas yours or anybody else's that people have these, uh, routines that they do over and over again. And that children in particular demand the continuation of those routines. I, 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 I feel like yeah, when I was a kid, I, if someone had suggested that we do things differently than the way it had been done, I would be furious. And I expect that from a seven-year-old, but a 57-year-old strikes me as a little bit stranger. But but Christmas is, for Crayon, a restoration of childhood, right? It's it's this... Yeah, point taken, so point I, taken. I, I think, yeah, you're supposed to laugh at the squire, and I know we're getting into the next question. You're supposed to laugh at the squire and all his ridiculous um, adherences to these rules that, in some cases, he just makes up. Right? They're not. They're not actually ancient. But also, I think you're supposed to you're supposed to view him with a certain sort of affection because of it. Because this is how we all uh, approach the holiday, more or less. Maybe maybe not you, Nathan. <laughs> Well, Michael, since we're, we're heading that way anyway, uh, the last piece in the series, The Christmas Dinner, mixes the ancient with the youthful uh, in a way that I do find delightful. Uh, as the old bachelor uncle, Master Simon, whom we've mentioned before, uh, he leads the children in a mask of Christmas after the manner of Renaissance amusements. So, Michael, uh, this is the finale. Uh, is this the final unmasking? Is this the uh, the grand number at the end of the show or is it something completely different well i I think it's both of those things i think it's meant to be both an unmasking and a celebration i don't know enough about how those masks worked in the renaissance and the medieval era Uh, i'll let you guys kind of deal with that 
But I, I will point out that the masks are a kind of um, microcosm of everything else that happens at Bracebridge at Christmas. So he talks about the guy dressing up as Robin Hood. And he says uh, there didn't seem to be a lot of research that went into the costume. Uh, but what it is is picturesque. That's the word he uses. There was an evident eye to the picturesque natural to a young gallant in the presence of his mistress. So there's a sense in which, yeah, a lot of this stuff is nonsense. A lot of it doesn't go back as far as they think it does. A lot of the stuff that does go back doesn't really have any kind of meaningful application in the modern world. But who cares? The fun of it is that antiquarianism, uh, that impractical antiquarianism that may or may not be connected to reality. And somehow in doing that, in, in performing those sorts of rituals, we end up hitting a deeper reality. And I think that's why the, the last essay ends with uh, him addressing people who would like this essay to be more ethical, uh, have more practical advice to it. And it, here's the last paragraph. What, after all, is the might of wisdom that I could throw into the mass of knowledge? Or how am I sure that my sagest deductions may be safe guides for the opinions of others? But in writing to amuse, if I fail, the only evil is my own disappointment. If, however, I can by any lucky chance in these days of evil rub out one wrinkle from the brow of care or beguile the heavy heart of one moment of sorrow, if I can now and then penetrate through the gathering film of misanthropy, prompt a benevolent view of human nature, and make my reader more in good humor with his fellow beings and himself, surely, surely I shall not have written entirely in vain. And I think you can say the same thing of these rituals, this antiquarianism. If it brings you joy, which it clearly does, it brings everybody joy who goes to this party, then do it. Let that be your Christmas. And, and don't feel like you have to justify it by saying, oh, this is how things were really celebrated in 1515 or whenever, whenever, uh, whenever the squire would like this to take place. The lie is the and, and, and you're And you're granting that that's exactly what the squire's doing, right? That what? Uh, what do you mean? What? That what's what's he doing? Uh, that that he is saying we're doing this precisely as they would have done it in fifteen fifteen. I think what the squire says or does is more or less irrelevant. That what the the viewpoint we're given of this is Jeffrey Crayons, this outsider, and he doesn't have the erudition to analyze or evaluate the claims that are being made about Christmas. But he knows this is a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, so drink your wassail, eat your uh, boar's head, and uh, enjoy the antiquarian spirit of the thing. That's fair enough. That's I mean, fair enough. Nathan, to, to some degree or another, we're all living with this. We're just not, most of us are not going back to the 15th century, 16th century. Most of us are going back to the 1940s and 1950s. I, American Christmas. Well, sure, and, and, and I suppose the difference I would posit is that that is a living memory in a way that this is not. Yeah, but who cares? I mean, I mean really, if if <laughs> if you found out that the way you think of Christmas in 1948 or whatever whatever year most influences your own family celebrations, it wasn't like that. Would it matter, or is the ritual itself the thing that? The, the thing that's so joyful about the holiday. Oh, I don't think it much matters at all. I also don't spend a whole lot of times going back to books to make sure we're doing it exactly as they used to do it. Yeah, that's true. I guess I, I think that's what I'm trying to get across unsuccessfully, but that's what I'm trying to drive at. David, is there anything you want to add? A couple of things that come out of this, uh, this, this great vision or antiquarian nonsense or whatever. Um, the, the crusader in his armor uh, this picture there's a picture of a crusader on the wall there's armor hanging on the wall uh, and Jeffrey Crayon our narrator has strong doubts about the authenticity of the painting and armor as having belonged to the crusader they certainly they certainly having the stamp of more recent days right right um, but the squire seems to have found them in the in a lumber room. You know, he he was rooting around in the attic or whatever, and found these things, and is like, "Yep, these must be the remains of the crusader." 
um, th that feels sort of emblematic <laughs> uh, of of m much of the rest of this attitude. Like it's it might not be exactly the past or their past, but it's a past, and it makes the present. Uh, it gives the present interest. It gives the pr it gives the sense of connection to the past, even if it's not an authentic connection. And the crusader shows up again in the telling of uh, the the parson telling ghost stories. Talks about the squire um, uh, loving the ghost stories, but then this bit this this is where your pathos is back again, Nathan. All these superstitions I found had been very much countenanced by the squire, who, though not superstitious himself, was very fond of seeing others so. He listened to every goblin tale of the neighboring gossips with infinite gravity, and held the porter's wife in high favor on account of her talent for the marvelous. He was himself a great reader of old legends and romances, and often lamented that he could not believe in them, for a superstitious person, he thought, must live in a kind of fairyland. <laughs> yeah, I, he he looks at the past and thinks that it must have been amazing to live and believe that such things were so. And I can't, but I can continue the telling of these stories. I can, you know, self-consciously pursue the enchantment of the present with these relics of the past, even though I do not myself participate in the enchantment. It, it's really really interesting um and and sad <laughs> but uh you know i i i've i i see that as not unconnected to uh i don't know certain other traditions that uh we associate with christmas in america certainly certainly well david we've already kind of uh started into the home stretch here so let's uh go ahead and run down that home stretch we've talked about christmas you know in the uh in the days since those of jeffrey crayon uh as taking its own energy from retaining and re replicating and restoring and inventing and otherwise keeping the old ways of christmas that we've either remembered or read about or cooked up in commercials uh I mean, what are what are what are some of 2019's Christmas bits that you want to talk to our listeners about? We'll just kind of informally send it around the horn. I'll grab three things from recent experience. Uh, one is the Sunday morning study that uh, my partner and I are leading. Uh, it's called "Songs We Sing: uh, Songs of Christmas Past." we're looking at old carols and so we've talked about uh, the Coventry Carol and low hell a rose air blooming and God rest ye merry gentlemen and all that sort of thing and it's been very self-consciously about uh, what was the time and place in which these songs arose what do, uh, let's read them closely as poetry let's consider them as ways in which uh, Christians of a particular time and place uh, celebrated what Christmas means um, and you know I, w when I teach that class uh, I, I think about the squire <laughs> you know in some in some limited sort of way I feel squirish at that point uh, there was a crisis I observed online with some acquaintances who I'm fairly certain don't listen so I don't think this will be a problem, uh, but there was a crisis regarding an elf on a shelf. Oh heavens! Uh, see, uh, one of the children in the home had seen the parent move the elf, and so an elaborate, uh, an, an elaborate plot ensues involving letters from Santa and a whole lot of other kind of shenanigans and skullduggery in order to re-enchant the elf on the shelf. Oh my god, that, I hadn't thought of it, David, that might be the most Bracebridge thing we've got going right now. Yep. Uh, and then, finally, um, a lot of my friends who, uh, and this includes uh, my own church, a lot, of, a lot of folks who grew up in 
low church traditions uh, who have embraced the notion of Advent, um, using Advent readings within the home, um, Advent candles, and so forth. Uh, and within and and often uh, often folks who are who are in traditions that in previous generations would have uh, vigorously opposed those as you know you know some some sort of popery popery yeah romish something like that um but uh nonetheless find it finding finding in them not even a past to which they and their tradition are necessarily directly heir uh, something beautiful and useful that ought to be ought to be preserved and uh, and appreciated. A lot of it going around. Very good, Michael. What do you got? I, I'm I'm still stuck on the fact that so much of our yearly celebration of Christmas is essentially a throwback to the baby boomers' childhood, and that's a thing we've talked about multiple times this season, I think, probably most notably in the Woodstock episode. But here again, I think it's a place where the the baby boomer's childhood has really bequeathed us something uh, interesting and special and and enchanted in its weird way. I mean, David talks about the the religious carols going back that far. Almost all the secular songs we sing at Christmas are from the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, I, I don't I don't know I find that I find that very interesting and and worth holding on to maybe in some ways the greatest legacy of the baby boomers is what we think of as uh, a traditional American Christmas maybe because there was no traditional American Christmas for so long. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I like that. Uh, and I, I probably should have something to, to bring up here, but I'm, I'm still thinking about what you guys are talking about, so I'll kind of let that stand as the last word and say to our listeners, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, thank you for listening in this year. Our next episode is actually going to be in January 2020. Uh, we're going to be in the 20s, so uh, we'll be recording from a speakeasy. And, uh, Michael, what are we going to be talking about? Uh, I think after years of threatening it, we're finally going to do our episode on Dwight McDonald's mass cult and mid-cult. I, I didn't get enough of fighting with you on the Taxi Driver episode, and now we're going to come back at it from a new angle. Uh, I'm still tired from fighting about Taxi Driver, but I guess Fortunately, I've got we got January. a month. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got till January to rest up, I guess. Well, at any rate, listeners, uh, that's what's coming in January 2020. In the meantime... Uh, you can go back into the back catalogs of all of our shows. We'll rerun uh, a couple over the holidays. Yes, we will, we will. Uh, and you can find all of those shows at christianhumanist.org. You can also find Facebook groups for the Christian Humanist Podcast, the Christian Feminist Podcast, the City of Man, the Sectarian Review, uh, the Book of Nature. Am I leaving out any Facebook groups? If I am, I apologize. You can also email us here at the Christian Humanist at the Christian Humanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Michael Farmer does our editing, and I'm Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael and of David Grubbs, saying, Let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>